welcome to this talk from Emmaus Road, a church with congregations in Guildford and Woking in the UK. To find out more about who we are and what we're up to, please visit us online at EmmausRoad.com. And thank you, it's a real privilege and a pleasure to be with you on this Sunday morning and in a very important time in the whole of human history. The last eight months have been really very challenging, very demanding, very exciting. And uh, particularly here we are in what many people regard as Black History Month. It's a particular pleasure of mine to come and be a part of your worship. Pete kind of set the pace for us on that a little earlier on. So I want to talk to you about Pete's epistle on overcoming otherness. Otherness, that's the idea that you set yourself apart from people you don't understand or who you find it difficult to relate to. You probably demonize them, distance them in order to, 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 to handle that difference. So Pete's epistle on overcoming otherness is what we're going to talk about uh, for the next couple of minutes. To be clear though, when I say Pete, I'm not talking about this Pete. I'm talking about the other Pete, Saint Peter. And what fascinates me about Peter, the apostle, is that he was a tremendously central person and personality. It's one of the most important episodes in the church's history, which we'll come to in the letter written in a while. And it's Pete's reflections I am fascinated by. The Bible doesn't tell us anything about them, except that we have some footprints over a number of years, which must have led him to that place where he was party to what I think is one of the most important letters in the whole of the Bible. I would even say one of the most important letters in the history of the church. You find it in uh, the book of Acts chapter 15, and I'm going to pick it up from verses 24, partly because this comes to the heart of the letter, and partly because some of the verses before that have some difficult names I can't quite pronounce properly. We have heard, said the apostles from Jerusalem, that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends, Barnabas and Paul, two of the senior apostles and leaders at the time, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. No pressure there then. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. And it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. And you do well if you avoid these things. Ta-ta! Actually, it says farewell. I think this is a brilliant letter. You can tell it wasn't written by Greeks. It's written by Jewish men and women who have the helm of responsibility in the growing church, which HQ in Jerusalem. But I can imagine Pete, St. Peter, really reflecting quite a lot on this. I imagine Pete in his home after this letter has been sent out to 
the provinces where the Christian faith has grown and where Christians who are Jewish, who are Jewish, who speak Greek and Christians who are Gentiles, who don't speak Aramaic and they're not Greek speaking Jews, they are real Gentiles. As the letter goes out to this incredible group of diverse people, I can imagine Pete reflecting on the experiences he's had. So consider this as a kind of a series of flashbacks which Peter replays in his mind and his heart as this letter goes throughout the churches in the known world. I think the first flashback he has is what I call Jesus's Samaritan policy. There was a real issue with Jews and Samaritans. Samaritans were like historic cousins, historic sharers of the same legacy of Abraham and Isaac and the big names in Jewish history. But there were also the people who were othered by the Jewish community. And by the way, this isn't an anti-Semitic reference point. It's just a great important lesson we all need to know. The other people who were their cultural neighbors, Samaritans were cheek by jowl with Jews geographically. They weren't like a zillion miles away. You travel through Samaria if you wanted to get from point A to point B along the Jewish uh, geographical spaces. And Samaritans were also, it seems, going to be people who, despite the Jewish response to them, were potential carers. That's what the story of the Good Samaritan is all about. But I think we make a mistake if we limit all of Jesus' teachings simply to the great story of the Good Samaritan. What I think was happening here was that Peter, along with the disciples, had been exposed to what I call Jesus's Samaritanism. So there were great stories in the New Testament about Jesus's response to the othering of Samaritans. A great story of 10 lepers, for example, who came to Jesus, he healed them, they all went away. One came back as a worshiper. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for my healing. Who was it? Yeah, you guessed. Uh, Samaritan. And then there is this incredible story in John chapter 4 of a woman from Samaria who had actually found Jesus at the well, had this incredible conversation with him. They compared notes about religion and history and culture and attitudes. At the end of this amazing conversation, Jesus is invited back to Samaria. You probably never thought about this as being a big deal, but if you were Peter in Jesus's little huddle of disciples, you would have found it an amazing revolution. Why? Because they spent three days in Samaria. This is like being with people you thought were your arch enemies. And what does Jesus do? He brings you in to eat to sleep among them, to pat the kiddies' heads, to tell stories about Judaism, to hear their stories, to hear their pain, to hear their life experiences. This would have been an amazing revolution in Peter's mind. And I can't help thinking that as Peter waited for the impact of this letter to go out about otherness, that he must have reflected on that really important story. I think Peter would have been at home with the sentiments of the Black Lives Movement, therefore. He would have related to the idea that others are not a threat to us just because they're different. 
And he would have related to the fact, through the story of the Good Samaritan, this great idea that a Samaritan would care for a broken and bruised Jewish victim when Jewish officials walk past him. This said to the people around, the very people we other and despise and keep at a distance actually have the capacity to care for us. And the other therefore needs to be regarded as carers. I've had a few stints in hospital recently and the glorious, beautiful but broken NHS is totally populated by cultures of otherness. All the people who came to me at my hospital bed, who gave me these injections, who brought my medication, who fed me, who cared for me, who gave me a change of gowns, were others. Well, not others if you're already black, but certainly those who the main culture would determine to be others. Black, Asian individuals, people from the Philippines, Chinese, this great gathering of individuals who care for us despite the fact that very often they find themselves othered. And I think it's a really big lesson. So I think Pete, Peter, would have been probably okay with that amazing shot. Do you remember it? A Black Lives Movement guy who is caring for a right-wing demonstrator who othered him put him on his shoulder and took him to a place of safety. I think Pete would have understood from the Samaritan principle that otherness is very often the very people who care for us when we most need them. Here's a second flashback, I think, which Peter would have had in his mind. It's the great big church day. Call it the day of Pentecost, this is Acts chapter 2. You remember the story. The disciples are meeting in the upper room. They're waiting on Jesus' promise for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes, huge crash of thunder as the Spirit comes in like a great wind and the tongues of fire sitting on each of their heads. And then the crowds outside pressing in and saying, hey, what's this all about? And Peter explains to the crowd of Jewish worshippers who've come from all over the known world, speaking a whole multiplicity of languages, that there is a reason they heard their own languages mentioned from little bunch of Galilean folks who had hardly traveled more than 30 or 50 miles in any one direction at any one point, and in no way would have been able to learn their language. But what's happening in this phenomena? Galileans speaking the language of the dispersed Jewish diaspora. People often say that this is a signal of unity. I'm not sure about that. I think it's actually a signal of diversity. I think this is God saying, I am speaking your language. And if you know anything about languages, and I don't know much, you know that when you're speaking another language, you're actually speaking a person's life their values, their culture, their priority, their passion. You can't speak another language unless you get into the person's mindset, the person's culture, politics, life. And when others outside the door, because the future church in this occasion is outside the door, when they hear 
God's name being praised in their language, they know that God is talking to them. Acts chapter 2 in the big day out says to me that God is into diversity. And what we other, the people we push out and other, are very often the very people who are going to be the future of the legacies we have been carrying. And we need to remember that. The church on the day of Pentecost was outside the front door. I wonder if you ever heard of the Azusa Street revival, 1906 to 1909 and into 1915, the world's biggest revival ever. Led by a black guy called William J. Seymour, black guy, poor one eye. But he was the guy who God, who God used significantly to catalyze this global movement of Pentecostalism. But did you know that there was a period where in the first Pentecostal school run by a white guy called Parnum, William J. Seymour was not allowed inside the class. He was othered. He had to sit in the corridor of Parham School. This is the guy who is going to catalyze and lead one of the greatest Christian movements in modern days, Pentecostalism. But in that scenario, he's outside the room. I need to say this. The fact that God's spirit comes to us in our Pentecostal and charismatic context is no guarantee that we will treat people well. In fact, we're probably often the biggest culprits. We work from paradigms of power, prophetic utterances, authoritative statements from the front. We very often overlook the other. We don't listen, we don't pay attention to those who are different so long as they do it the way we have always dictated it. Peter found that this just wasn't gonna cut it. And so as he sits and reflects, I'm pretty sure he's remembering that incredible day. We call it the day of Pentecost. It's the awakening, the birth of the church. Yeah, and another lesson for Pete, that God brings in otherness and redeems those who we have pushed aside. Here's the third lesson I think would have been in Pete's mind. It's what I call prayer, preaching, and poverty. This is the book of Acts chapter 6, and it's a phenomenal thing again because what's happening now is that the church which gathered in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, many of them have stayed. They didn't go back, or if they went back to where they lived, they came back. And the church in Jerusalem is growing and flourishing. And one of the things the church has done is to look after widows. Why? Widows and orphans were the most vulnerable in communities. So the church prioritizes in its program the care of widows. So you had Jewish widows, you had Greek widows. And what was happening was this. The Greek widows were receiving an injustice because they were being overlooked in the care and the, and the feeding of all of the widows. So they complain. By the way, worth realizing that the first controversy in the early church wasn't theology, it wasn't doctrine, it was racism. It was injustice. And what the church did, pretty much like you're doing here at Emmaus Road, is to stop, to say, okay, we're not gonna ignore this thing, we are gonna fix it. What did they do? 
the apostle said, you know what? We're not going to stop preaching and praying, but we're going to get some other guys, seven of them, to take care of this table business, look after this food thing, because food is a big deal, let's be honest about this. The usual thinking here is that what we have is the beginning of the diaconate, you know, here are the deacons. Where do you go in the scriptures if you want to find how to appoint deacons? Aha! Acts 6. And I see Peter up in heaven saying, they're good Baptists, but they've really missed it again. No, Axis has nothing to do with the appointment of deacons. It has everything to do with behaving right and justly to those who have been othered, those who have been dispossessed, disadvantaged, outcast. And what they do is really important. These seven people they get are Greeks. They find the people who have been affected by the injustice and the racism, and they get them to be a part of fixing the problem. And they get high-class men, Stephen and Nicholas from Antioch. They get these really classy people who have a great reputation in the community, well-networked, prophetic, great preachers. And what they're doing, actually, is saying, we're not going to put this issue on a lower level than preaching and praying, we're going to get quality people to do justice. And we're going to fix this problem. And I'm fascinated by this because it means that within a very short space of time, the church in Jerusalem was able to identify and locate people who were othered, the Greeks, the non-Jews, as quality leaders. I still don't get it. I don't get how churches can be going for 50 years with 20 or 30 or 40 or 60 percent of their congregations who are black or Asian or from other parts of the world and we can't find any quality leaders. We have to do it ourselves. I don't get that. In Jerusalem they got quality guys from otherness to help to fix the racial problem. And you know what happened? Verse 7 of Acts chapter 6 tells you that after they did that the church grew even more. When you stop and fix injustice, God rushes in because he takes it quite seriously. And I'm pretty sure that Pete remembered that. Remembered that. Let's give the others a chance to lead. And if there's a problem, let's not do it for them or to them. Let them be involved in fixing racism, in fixing injustice, in fixing disadvantage. We will not let them be passengers. We will get them on board. Here's my other thing. I call it pigs and poetry, just because it sounds like fun, and I like the look of these pigs. But it's a really important lesson. This is Peter and Cornelius. Cornelius is a Roman centurion. He's the enemy. He's the guy we pay taxes to, to oppress us. But God has already revealed himself to Cornelius over in Caesarea. Pete is in Joppa. That's like two days' journey. And God speaks to Cornelius, the Roman soldier, and says, Go get Pete, because Pete has a message for you. And Pete has to travel two days to come to a Gentile, Roman, oppressing centurion 
who's already in love with God. Pete must have had a lot of time to think about that for two days on the road, on the way to a Gentile congregation, which he was not supposed to do. And the way in which God prepared him was by a fantastic dream, a great sheet coming down from heaven, on the sheet, all kinds of animals, animals that the Jewish people were allowed to eat and some they weren't allowed to eat. And God says, arise, Pete, kill and eat. And Pete said, no, 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 against the law, we're not doing that. Yeah, let's try a second time. Arise, Pete, and kill and eat. God had to speak to him three times before the message began to percolate in Peter's mind and heart. What was God saying? I'm rewriting the laws of theology. I'm expanding your theological horizons. The things and the people you thought were off bounds are coming in. You need to shift your thinking. You need to listen to some theological perspectives you have no knowledge of previously. You need to open your mind and heart to liberation type thinking. You need to open your mind and heart to people who don't preach like you or sound like you or do church in the way you do church. They have a slightly different liturgical posture than you do. And you need to go into the heart of the Gentile community, speak to your oppressor, get over the fact that this is historically your oppressor, and bring him into your heart. Why? Because I already have. And so the stuff you thought was not possible is possible because this is the future of the church. Enjoy your ham sandwich, Pete. <laughs> and the last thing for me is really quite powerful. Well, they're all powerful, aren't they? Let's be honest. The church in Antioch became a new HQ. This is what we mean when we say that in the book of Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, the future church was outside the door, listening to God, speaking to them. Maybe 20, 30 years later, Antioch in Syria, 300 miles away from Jerusalem, is a new center of gravity. A number of things are happening in Antioch. Firstly, quality leaders again, Greeks, Gentiles, non-Jews. What's happening in Antioch is that as a trading center, they're financially independent. So when Jerusalem has a famine, who sends them food bank stuff? It's the church from Antioch. Here you are, Jerusalem. We're helping you out financially. What is it about Antioch? Confident leaders, prophets are there. They have something else. Antioch, the Bible tells us, is the first place where the disciples were called Christians. Hey, they have the brand, and we all know brand speaks. And so Antioch becomes the new mission center. It's from here that Paul and Barnabas and Silas are sent out to the rest of the world. And now Peter is understanding what Jesus meant when he said, you're going to be my witnesses 
and you're going to be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and Judea, yeah, and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. 300 miles away, Antioch may as well be the ends of the earth, quite frankly. And so the toppling of power becomes something they have to be familiar with. When Edward Colton's statue was removed from its plinth in Bristol, I wonder what Pete would have said if he stood by the empty plinth. I think he would have understood it. There comes a time when the old order gets revised. When we don't ditch everything about the past, even bad people do good things. Mm. There's a time to take some things, some habits, some liturgies, some attitudes, some power bases, some prejudices off its pedestal. And we understand for the first time, perhaps, that the God of the future is bigger than the God of the past. And the church of the future has more promises for the world than perhaps the church of our prescribed past. It was a great letter. It is definitely a Jewish written letter. You can tell it's got this smack of Levitical prohibition about it. Don't do this, don't do that, don't do that. Farewell. But I like it, it's liberating. Something about this letter which says to Gentiles, we're not going to have you behaving like Jewish Christians. We want you to be liberated because God has made some of you Scottish and he's made some of you Welsh. And sadly, some of you support the wrong football teams, but he loves us all. And some of you have come from Africa and some of us have come from Asia and some of us have come from other parts of the world which historically in the context of the UK have experienced racism, rejectionism, otherness. And God calls his church in this season and beyond to listen to this letter again and to liberate everyone to be made in the image of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you are this amazing, liberating God. And we ask you to stir our minds, to stir our hearts again, to be the church you want us to be. For those we have othered, may we ask your forgiveness. For those we have marginalized, May we ask your forgiveness for where we have been blind to the beauty and the diversity of your church. Please open our eyes that we may follow you to the ends of the earth where you already are. In Jesus' name, amen.